Radio Real. Real Radio, your reality. Welcome to Off the Shelf, the second life radio show and podcast about books and the people who love them. I'm Kegia Garardi. And this is Simeon Beresford. Join us as we survey the literary scene in our virtual world. Welcome to this episode of Off the Shelf. Uh, Mike stacked up. Paul's been, a, been wandering around Second Life for quite a while, but we finally got managed to corner him. First became aware of him way back when he was writing role-playing games. He was a regular contributor and designer to games and magazines. Then he started writing fiction and became fair quarry for Off the Shelf. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Mike. Well, thank you very much for having me here. I'm finally glad to make it. Mike, how did you find the transition from writing role-playing games to fiction? Was it difficult? No, it was actually a, a fairly smooth transition because um, the uh, the game industry at that time was very much the way the the pulp magazines were in the 30s. We were being paid to do a lot of writing, and uh, a lot of learning how to write is just sitting down and getting that discipline down of, of being able to grind out the words. And a lot of role-playing games, you were asked to be developing characters, to be developing settings and and scenarios and all those things. So, you know, when it switched over to, instead of designing characters for someone else to play, um, writing up those adventures of those characters, it was actually fairly easy. So did you always want to write fiction, or did it evolve out of uh, writing for the for the games, mags? Well, actually, uh, uh, I think I always had in my mind that I was interested in writing fiction because my mother's father had had a book of uh, anecdotes published back in 1937, and that was something with which my mother was, was very, very proud. And then... Uh, when I was in sixth grade, when I was all of six years old, uh, the very first piece of mail I ever got uh, addressed to me was um, a rejection letter for a poem that I'd written. Um, <laughs> my mother had liked it and sent it off. And, uh, and I think ever since after that, I was intent on proving publishing that they were wrong and rejecting me. So yeah, They always are wrong. They always do it. <laughs> Your first novel you published was Once a Hero. How many books did you write before you were able to get that one to publish into publication? Well, actually, Once a Hero, it's a really kind of a weird story. I had done a bunch of Battletech novels already. Once a Hero was the first fantasy novel that got published by uh, a New York publisher, by Bantam. So I had sort of been, been working in the gaming industry, getting a bunch, of, a bunch of novels published, and they had taken that. Um, the very first novel I I actually wrote was Tally and Revenant, which came out in 97, I think, which when I turned it in, and actually was a novel that the guys at FASA read before they gave me Battletech novels to write, um, a traditional publishing, or, or Bantam, had, Bantam and others had decided um, Tally and Revenant was way too long to be published by an unknown author. And then when 97 rolled around, the first of my Star Wars books had already come out, I was a New York Times best-selling author at that point. Um, so length was no longer a problem, oddly enough. Yeah, Once, the, Once a Hero is pretty hefty, but you also mentioned that it's one of your favorite books. Why is that? Well, Once a Hero was, was one of those books where uh, everything really just clicked uh, in, in ways that I never could have imagined. Um, one of the key things that ended up happening in that book was that uh, Bantam sent me the cover, uh, sent me a cover copy sample, and it had the back cover copy on there, which revealed what I thought was going to be the climax of the novel. So 
I called my editor because I wasn't done writing the novel at that point. But I called my editor and I said, um, you're giving away the climax. And she said, well, we actually thought that point was what made it, you know, made it a book that deserved to be in our line. So, yeah, the back cover copy is going to stay. And as a result, since what I'd intended to be the climax of the novel was revealed, I ended up writing my way all the way around it. Um, basically, that, that climactic bit was that the hero was going to die and then be resurrected. Um, so I figured if the reader knew that he was going to die, then what I ended up doing with the novel was kept placing him in danger where he should have died. <laughs> and so the readers would keep wondering, when is it going to happen? And, and how can it, it can't be any worse than it is right now. And then it was extremely worse. And, and so... So, like I say, I just got pushed to, to work on things in a, in a lot of different ways that um, uh, I, I hadn't expected, and, and it just worked out really nicely. Really forced your creativity as well. Uh, absolutely, and, and I think this is, um, when I teach writing classes, this is one of the things that I always say to the students, if with any project, um, you, you can't identify where you've bitten off more than you can chew, you aren't trying hard enough. Um, so, you know, I think writers who just sit back and, and coast and don't try and make themselves better, um, are, are waiting to be tossed to the wayside when somebody who is willing to make themselves better, uh, comes up and just blows past them. Right. Well, you obviously put a lot of thought into what a hero is because you've been writing heroes from the beginning. You know, once a hero, you're more recent in hero, in hero years, I'm dead. Have you worked out? what a hero is to yourself and has that idea or definition changed over time? Well, I think that um, I've always been fascinated with heroes and a a book I got probably 20 years ago now um, happens to be all of the Medal of Honor citations uh, issued by the U.S. Armed Forces uh, up to the first Gulf War. And the, and the thing that I find fascinating about all of them, and, and when you read biographies about heroes, these are all guys who were ordinary people put into a, an incredibly extraordinary circumstance. And by and large, they all seem to get to that point where they figure, well, I'm probably dead, but I don't want my friends to die. Therefore, I better do something. And it is with this total selflessness that they go out there and they accomplish these incredible things. Um, and so I think it's, it's people who are, are placed in a circumstance beyond their control who rise over and above um, that really open themselves up to be, being defined as, as heroes. And it's, for me, it's just a fascinating study, and I enjoy doing it with characters as well. Mm-hmm. So you're not using the whole Joseph Campbell archetype of a hero or anything like that. It's a very practical definition for you. Uh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, you know, the interesting thing about Joseph Campbell and the, and the Hero of a Thousand Faces is that's all built on, uh, Campbell's research was built on research that was done uh, around the turn of the previous century as people went through and they took folklore apart and broke it down into motifs, its, its individual building blocks. And what Campbell did was concentrate on hero stories and sort of said, look, this is the average hero story. This is the way that all of these things come together. And unfortunately, there's been a generation of writers that have decided that uh, his hero's journey is the only roadmap uh, there is for writing a story. And yet you have to remember what he's got is the average. If you go through and you look at all the motifs that he doesn't use, or if you go through and look at, at Tolkien and all the motifs that Tolkien doesn't use, and you start bringing those things back in and you mess things around... Um, you're in much better shape. I remember when I Jedi was coming out, a bunch of us got to go to the Smithsonian because they had their Star Wars uh, uh, exhibit there. And the Star Wars exhibit had been arranged along the lines of Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey. And so there was, it was like Stations of the Cross. I mean, there were these 10 different phases, and you would go and look at all the things that they had arranged that way. Well, I Jedi was due out a month later, and as I was going through the exhibit, I was thinking... Well, Corin goes through that phase, and then that phase, and then that phase, and then that phase, but not in Joseph Campbell's order. They're all mixed up, and that is, that's the commonality of folklore, and as writers, 
the one thing that we have to remember is that folklore and motifs, how people learn to understand stories, is kind of universal. So as long as we're playing with those universal blocks, people can understand the stories that we're telling and really enjoy them. So many things I wanted, we're going to talk about later in that statement. So um, I'm going to go ahead and ask you how your writing has changed over the course of time. Because, you know, you have written a, an impressive body of work. And maybe um, what I should also ask is what you've learned about writing in the process. Oh, boy. I mean, you know, what I've learned about writing um, is it would be impossible to to, to quantify because I've, I've just learned so much. And, and I've got a um, how to write newsletter that I do where I talk about this. And I think we're just finishing up the sixth year of that. So that's 150 issues, you know, addressing all these different points just to give you an idea of how much there is. But I think the key thing is this, that... If you want to be a good writer and if you want readers to return again and again and again, you have to have characters who grow, not just characters who change. Um, you know, uh, Kat Alderson is here in, in the studio, and one of the discussions that she and I had, to use the Harry Potter books as an example, is that Harry is a character who changes. He never grows. He is essentially, he's, he's the same character when the books start as when the books end. He just knows a lot more parlor tricks. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you look at the character Neville, um, Neville is the character who grows. He starts out as the kid that you know is going to get beat up at recess. And yet by the end of the books, he's the kid who's risen to that heroic role of being the opposition at Hogwarts. Even though he gets threatened, he gets beaten up, even though his grandmother is threatened, he's the one that stands up and says, no, you know what, I, I am not going to let you people do this. And, and so Neville is the character who actually shows growth, whereas Harry just changes. And, and it would have been easy to fix. Um, not, not to be critical, I mean, I love those books and I understand them for what they are and I think they're great and recommend them. But that's just the difference between those two characters. And I think growth is the key. If you can make your characters grow, then you can be doing this for a long time. So if you look back at some of your earlier works, or your earliest works, do you have characters that you would have grown in different ways now? Or do you ever look back at your works that way? Um, I don't really look back at them that way. I think when I do look back, I was fairly lucky in having characters that grew without me really knowing what I was doing. And now it's easier for me to go through and identify a growth arc and, and, and have that, all that stuff laid in in the first draft as opposed to having to have to do the first draft, go, oh, oh, that's the character's growth arc. Well, let's shore this up here and let's shore that up there. Um, so that is, uh, uh, you know, that's one aspect of it. I think the other thing is that, and the really tough thing is, um, getting growth arcs into short stories, uh, because you don't have much space. Space is a is a is a trick, and that's one of the ones that I think, especially in the last four or five years, I've gotten much better at. Um, but I think I think ultimately, as you know, as a writer, and I think this is true of, of most writers who are going to be in the game for a long time, um, you do learn to challenge yourself. You learn to have characters face conflicts that you wouldn't have been comfortable with dealing with before. Um, and that also makes it interesting. Right. Uh, let's go back a bit. How did you get involved in writing the Star, Star Wars novels? Um, Star Wars novels, uh, 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 back in the late 80s, uh, Lou Aronica had uh, gotten a license for Bantam Books. Uh, from Lucasfilm to do uh, Star Wars books. Tim Zahn had started doing them, and his first one, Heir to the Empire, hit the bestseller list and sold 150,000 units in hardback in the first six weeks, which was unprecedented. Yeah. Nobody had seen that coming. And everybody wanted, uh, everybody wanted a Star Wars book at that point. Um, my agent was talking to Bantam. I had uh, signed a contract with Bantam to do Once a Hero and Eyes of Silver. And um, so I was in their stable. Um, 
little did I know that, that they wanted to do more Star Wars books. Bantam, or, um, Lucasfilm wouldn't sell them an additional license. So uh, Bantam decided they were going to buy a license to the X-Wing computer game. And when they started going through their list of authors that they had who could do um, military science fiction, who had worked in other people's universes, who understood games, who understood computer games, could work well and work very fast, um, I was pretty much the only guy that checked off all those boxes. Oh, yeah. All so, experience with FASA must have really stood in good stead there. Oh, absolutely, and the fact that I had done computer games with uh, Bard's Tale 3 and Wasteland and Neuromancer. Um, so, uh, so, literally, you know, I knew my agent was, was trying to get a Star Wars book for me, and uh, 7 o'clock in the morning, I got a phone call from New York, and she said, uh, Bantam just offered you four books. I said, yes. He offered you four Star Wars books. I said, yes. And, and that was it. Though, though I will say a, a just a cute caveat to that, uh, like within a week and a half, I went to a convention, uh, and my editor was there from Bantam, and he announced that I was doing this four book set. And throughout the weekend at the convention, everyone congratulated me on getting a trilogy. Um, <laughs> and since since I knew they expected a trilogy, I plotted the books as three plus one. So when the third book ended. I could put a great surprise in the ending, and we go on to the fourth book, and it it stunned so many people. It was great fun. Ah, so um, was I Jedi? Was that your first New York Times bestseller? No, actually, all of the all of the X Wing books made it. So I Jedi would have been my fifth. Um. And no one had expected the X-Wing books to make them, and especially the third one, because when the third one came out, Stephen King was doing the whole Green Mile series of things. So of the 15 books on the paperback bestseller list, Stephen King had five of them. And uh, the Kratos Trap knocked... (laughs) But but the Kratos Trap knocked one of his off. Uh, (laughs) So so I was happy uh, for a week. Um, (laughs) Um... So did it? Did this open doors getting the New York Times bestsellers? Did, excuse me. Did which? Did it open new doors for you? Did it give you? A, oh, ab- lots of absolutely. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, you go from being uh, a writer to a New York Times bestselling author, uh, and that gets you um, that gets you a lot more um, uh, gets you a lot more attention. Uh, people take you a lot more seriously. Um, you know, the, the, occasionally, and we all run into these people anyway, but um, occasionally you'll run into somebody who you, they want to know what you do, and you tell them you're a writer, and they will kind of sniff and say, have I read anything of yours? And, uh, and you know, now I can turn around and say, I don't know, I've had eight books on the New York Times bestseller list, maybe you have. At but which it makes point- your mom happy too, doesn't it? <laughs> Oh yeah, 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 no doubt about that. But but uh, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things. If somebody's going to be snooty, you know, being able to play the New York Times bestseller card is is always um, it's always great fun. Um, but it uh, it also I was really lucky that those car that those uh, books were out and current and hot uh, during the same time that the movies were being re released and that Phantom Menace came out. So I mean, I got a lot of opportunities because of that as well. Did you have any restrictions or challenges working for, essentially, Lucas uh, when you were writing those books? Uh, n- not really. Not any more than I had, you know, with, with FASA or, or anybody else whose uh, universe I'd worked in. Um, and, in fact, um, Lucasfilm allowed me to get away with things I would not have allowed me to get away with. Um, they, they were very encouraging of... of um, of creativity. I mean, there was uh, in in um, in uh, the X-wing books. Uh, I ended up giving um, uh, a character a an Imperial Star Destroyer, giving a civilian an Imperial Star Destroyer. And the reason they let me get away with that is because in a book that Tim Zahn was working on, he needed it, uh, and so they allowed us to do that, which was kind of cool. Right. You you nicked my question, Kay. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Say it anyway. No, I'm I'm going to have to go on to the next one now. 
<laughs> right. Um, if I can find it. Tanyan Revenant and some very dedicated followers. Is there any hope of a sequel? Well, one of the things that I've done is, is I've released the book as, uh, as an electronic book. Um, Bantam and I, uh, uh, Bantam made me an offer to, to take care of uh, selling it as an e-book, and I told them no. Uh, and what I did when I released it as an e-book was uh, I said, look, when I sell 10,000 units in electronic form, uh, I, I will have been able to save up enough money to be able to write the sequel. Um, as it was, I've got notes on, uh, I had actually started the sequel to that book way back when, when I, right after I wrote um, Talion Revenant, I started a sequel called Talion Nemesis. And, um, uh, and I've got notes on five more Talion books. So I, I would love to go back to that universe. And fortunately, the way that things are changing with electronic publishing and all, uh, this is a, uh, a very viable uh, possibility um, because just literally the way electronic publishing is working and paying authors, um, it can make us independent of uh, the traditional publishing model where we mortgage the future to pay for the present. Um, so I would say, yeah, um, there'll be Italian Revenant sequel, and I would be surprised if it's not within the next two years. Sounds good. Go on, Kay. I'll let you ask the next question. Right. Well, first, I saw on your website that you're putting out chapters from Italian Revenant. Is that kind of teasers, or is it, you know, you can read the full book if you want to, if you linger long enough? Uh, if you linger long enough, you'll probably be able to read the the full book. I um, uh, I, I kind of slacked off on putting chapters out mainly because I've been uh, under really tight deadlines. Um, I had to do the novelization for the new Conan movie, and um, right immediately from that, I had to do, um, or I'm still working on, uh, of Limited Loyalty, which is the sequel to At the Queen's Command. So I'm I'm kind of buried. <laughs> It's a horrible job to be a writer and have things to write, isn't it? Uh, no, it's not a it's not a horrible job, but there are times it's pretty brutal. Um, I you know, I granted I you know, I say it's pretty brutal. I mean, I work indoors, there's no heavy lifting. You know, the the greatest danger is a paper cut, but um it, it can be exhausting. I bet. Well, the things that I know you best for are your trick Molloy stories because I've heard you read many of them in Second Life. Uh, right. What made you decide to combine that hard-boiled detective novel with urban fantasy? Well, I've, you know, I've always liked the, the hard-boiled detective um, kind of thing um, and had made a couple of forays um, uh, at it beforehand. I mean, the, the, some stuff that I did for Shadowrun, the Wolf and Raven stories, um, uh, the, the wolf, um, the, the narrator of those stories, doesn't quite have Trick's edge, uh, but uh, that, let's say, that sort of thing has always intrigued me, and I love our, the work of Rex Stout and, and other writers who write hard-boiled detective stuff. Rex Stout, of course, being on the softer end of it because of the Nero Wolf things, um, but surely, you know, Dash Hammett and, and, and everybody else um, really enjoy it. Raymond Chandler enjoy that work. Trick Malloy was a character that you know, just kind of struck me. I had certain visions of, uh, you know, you get certain images in your mind and you want to play with those. And then I got invited to write a story for a uh, for an anthology. And uh, boy, that Trick Malloy story just kind of just kind of came racing out. And then slowly discovering, as I was doing more stories with that character, um, slowly discovering where his story arc is going and 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 how he is going to grow and change um, it was just a lot of fun. Um, and, and I really like his attitude. He gets to say things that would get me killed. <laughs> That's true. So are doing those kinds of mashups where you're saying, I'm going beyond my, this one genre and to bring these other things together. One of those ways as a writer, you're challenging yourself. Yeah, I think it's, it is a, a thing to challenge. It's also a, a, an aspect to develop a voice, which is true to a character no matter where that character is, and and yet realizing that, you know, if you're going to do a hard-boiled detective in that sort of world, 
he's going to have certain concessions that that world will have created. If you wanted to take, um, you know, if you wanted to do a hard-boiled detective set back in Roman times, um, it's going to have to have the right historical flavor for that. Or if you want to put a hard-boiled detective in a fantasy world, again, you're going to have to have uh, the right flavor for that. Um, so, you know, sort of matching trick to his world. And, I mean, I do things with that character in that world, in that setting, because they seem right, that I don't do elsewhere. I mean, there are times that Trick is just mean and nasty, um, and and I don't have other characters that do that, and it's it's kind of like, okay, well, that's right for him. Okay, sure, got it. Um, so, so do you feel like you've outgrown the genre? And you know, as a writer, you just really need to be able to spread into different areas. Well, I think the genres are a a marketing uh, limitation. Uh, they are a way that it makes it easy for uh, people in bookstores to quantify what they're going to put on the shelves and where they're going to put it uh, on the shelves. Um, and this is something which is, is, is largely true in the United States. In other countries, it is not true um, that, that things may not be categorized in that, in that same solid way. Um, because it is a marketing constriction, I, you know... The deal that I have with readers is this. I will let you know what the flavor of this story is, whether it's fantasy or science fiction or some other mixture. But what I'm going to give you is a good story. And, you know, if you don't want to read a Western, that's fine. If you want a good story and you're interested in reading a Western, bingo, I got it for you. If you want a good story and you're looking for, you know, a, a busted ex-cop that can use magic while he works as a bouncer in a strip club, yeah, I got that covered. Um, you know, if you want epic fantasy, yeah, yeah, I got that covered. Um, so I don't think, I, I, I don't think that, that I, I don't really like genres. I, I think the other thing is that um, being able to combine genres or mix things up um, really does open up a whole lot of fun possibilities. And for you, it comes down to ultimately the story, the characters. Uh, absolutely. Um, if you're not if you're not telling a fun story about characters that people can relate to, um, they're not going to understand the story. They're not going to enjoy it. And uh, you know, I'm certainly not going to enjoy writing it. Um, and again, one of the cool things about coming back to digital publishing is, as long as I'm enjoying writing the story, I'm happy. I'm pretty sure out there on the World Wide Web. I can find enough people to make it worth my while to indulge myself because uh, there are enough twisted people out there who will probably like that same particular thing that I do at that moment. All right. Well, we're going to take a break now to listen to some music. Um, when we return, we're going to talk to Mike about the current state of the publishing industry, e-books. He's got opinions about e-books and what he is working on now. Hit it, Gabby. <laughs> Thank you. 
by the group Space Agency, provided by Mevio's Music Alley. Check it out at music.mevio.com. Right, Mike. You've turned into something of an advocate for vertically integrated publishing. What is vertically integrated publishing? What are the benefits? Well, the idea of vertically integrated publishing, which is a a term that was um, coined by uh, Robert Vardaman, is that an author in this digital age of digital publishing can control everything from the creation of stories on up through the marketing and merchandising of those stories and can reap that benefit. If you look at the traditional model of publishing, uh, authors write a novel, hand it over to a publisher, and they make somewhere between uh, 6 and 10% of the cover price of those books, uh, in return for which they expect that the publisher is going to do publicity, uh, distribution, uh, all of, take care of all the accounting, uh, and, and all of those services. Um, in vertically integrated publishing, uh, the author will get 65 to 95 percent of the cover price which is a significant increase and will end up having to do their own uh, their own marketing uh, their own their own production but those costs right there I mean all of the publicity and those things are, are, are what traditional publishers want us to do anyway um, and the editing and production are an incredibly tiny cost uh, compared to the profit, instead of getting seventy cents uh, for uh, an eight dollar paperback, I could sell the same story for five dollars over Amazon and make three fifty uh, without really any more work on my part than I'm being asked to do now. Um, the advantages are the advantages are wild. One, not only do we make more money, we get to get the stories out on a timely basis. If I get an idea for a story tomorrow, uh, I could have it on sale by the end of the week. Um, And uh, it also gives us a lot more flexibility in terms of length of stories. I mean, right now, either you write short stories, which top out about 7,000 words, or you're writing novels. And yet there are lots of stories that can be told in that interim ground. Yeah. Um, 
I think this is as much to do with uh, with media as anything else, rather than it being about having control yourself, it's because uh, e-books in particular just don't have any ne necessary length. You can sell an e-book, whether it's a novella or a, or a battleship. A battleship. No, uh, absolutely, absolutely correct. And I, and I, what I really like, um, uh, you know, the, the Trick Malloy stories were, were referenced earlier. What I really like is that, uh, you know, an author like me, I mean, the first of those stories uh, were all short stories, about six, 7,000 words in length that went into traditional uh, anthologies. The rest of the stories in this one collection I've got uh, are all 12 to 22,000 words long because that's how long the stories wanted to be. Um, and what I like then is to be able to look at doing a novel and then having a place where I can do a, a medium-sized story set with certain characters. It gives me a lot more flexibility and, oddly enough, allows uh, me as a writer to be back doing all the stuff that the guys were doing back during the days of the pulps when they didn't have the Internet, but they had a very vibrant uh, market um, uh, for short stories and medium length stories, uh, yeah. so they could do a lot of cool things. Yeah, so back in the days when when paperbacks were 150 pages long and you knew they were a mashup of three short stories, really. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I don't think anyone who's watched the way traditional publishers have, pro have approached the new media has been impressed. Um, Frankly, they haven't a clue most of the time. What do you think their biggest failings have been? I think their their biggest failings have been uh, really been twofold. One, they have uh, underestimated how quickly uh, digital publishing was going to unfold. Um, the fact is that in their stockholders' report in February, Barnes and Noble noted that in December of 2010. They had hit their ebook sales projections for 2014. Mm. So they hit their numbers four years faster than even, even they expected. Um, the publishers, uh, this, is, this is what traditional publishers have done. Prior to 2009, if I sold a book to a traditional publisher, we would split the ebook monies 50 50. In 2009, because of the Kindle, uh, the publisher suddenly realized that there was actually a market for ebooks. So, starting in 2009, every contract offered has offered uh, authors 25% of the ebook revenues. Yes, uh, that's a scandal. I'm, I can't get over that, to be honest. I, I'm well, aware of the costs, there's no cost to justify it. Oh, no, there are no costs to justify it, and, and they are not realizing that they're offering me 25% of what they get, which ends up being 17.5% of the cover price, whereas if I sell directly to the Kindle, I will make 70% of the cover price. So what is my incentive to go into business with them? Uh, and, and the fact is, is that there is no incentive to do that. Um, one of the things that you're going to see is that you're going to see authors breaking down into two camps. One are going to be the people who have gone directly to uh, self-publishing and, and promoting themselves over the web. And there are going to be the legacy authors who are wedded to the current system. And then a very tiny group, and I'll be one of them at least for a while, who's playing in both camps. Uh, just because, uh, just because I can, uh, and I work fast enough to make it, make it worth my while. And there are still projects that I want to work with, but um, you're going to watch those people that are tied to the legacy program slowly die off because the uh, the incentive and the amount of money we can actually make uh, doing it directly is incredible. And, and, and here's the other thing, just because just I think listeners may not understand this. An ebook sold through a traditional publisher in January 
I might see the money for that the following October. Whereas if I sell it directly in January via the Kindle, I will see that money in March. Just the lag time makes it more worth it to me to get the money now than having to wait for somebody to account for it nine months later. But traditionally, didn't authors um, authors survive on their advances? You know, they they get a couple of thousand up front in advance of sales. Well, traditionally, authors were surviving on their advances, but advances have been over the past five, six, seven years. Advances have been slashed. Um, you know, the advances that I'm getting out of traditional publishing now are one third of what I was getting five years ago, mm-hmm. and. You know, when you've when you've built up a lifestyle, when you you know, when you've bought a house, when you have these things that demand the higher number and all of a sudden things are being slashed back, um, you've got to find other things to do. And one of the ways that one of the ways that was obvious to me to supplement that income was to take the backlist and put it out there. Well, once you start seeing how well the backlist sells, then you start to ask yourself, my backlist is selling this well. Um, why don't I start selling front list? Um, you know, I remember um, a few years ago there were a lot of authors putting out their backlist on uh, on PODs on print on demand stuff. Um, do you think print on demand's got a future now, or do you think that will just get swept aside by eBooks? Well, I think print on demand it still has a place. I think it was it, it's been severely damaged because of smartphones all now suddenly becoming e-readers. Everybody who's got a smartphone has got an e-reader, so they've got a place to try things as digital books first. Um, so I think that uh, uh, POD is going to be useful in two places. Um, one is what I refer to as souvenir books, so that if you have a book which is done really well as a digital book uh, and you're an author, you can go ahead and do, say, a short run of you know, 12 or 25 or 50 um, as you're going to a convention or make them available. And, and these can be fairly nice and nicely done editions. Um, they can have illustrations. You can do things with them that you didn't do with the digital book. And this is going to be something which goes to the, uh, is going to go to the collector market. I think the other place where PODs will become valuable is um, with uh, small and medium-sized print houses. POD technology will allow them uh, to do far more economical runs of certain titles that they acquire and keep those books available uh, at a reasonable price. I used to think that one of the things that we would see were boutique bookstores where you would have offset press runs of all the big authors and those would show up up front and then you would have the POD machines in the back room so that people could um, you know, walk into the store or order over the internet and then come in to pick up their book. Um, but again, I think that particular application is going to suffer because everybody's got an ebook reader now on their phone. Yes. Yeah, I, I think they've still got their place. If you're if you want to market, I don't know, elephant-style kung fu or keeping saltwater fish in um, in small tanks, that sort of title just can't sure. support a big, uh, big press run, but it still deserves to be out there. Libraries and such need such things. Right, very true. Um, well, let's go on to the next one. Uh, what about DRM? What are your views on DRMs? I, I think DRM, especially as it, as it um, goes to electronic books, is, is kind of silly. Um, there's no DRM that can't be broken. Um, so I don't really see a reason why I, I need to amuse hackers by trying to put DRM on my stuff. Um, I think for authors, what's important is not to worry about piracy as much as to worry about or concentrate on building that connection between you as authors uh, and readers. Um, so um, the uh, uh, if you as an author, and, and what I use in all of my books is, is what someone else referred to as uh, mortal DRM, uh, where I just say on the copyright page, I have a little notice that says, look, the author worked really hard on this. If you enjoyed it, please come to his website and buy more material 
because you are a patron of the arts. You know, you get to vote with your dollars as to what I should be working on to entertain you. And I think once readers get that connection in mind, once they understand that that's how this system works, that yeah. they determine what I'm going to do, then, uh, then we've got a viable economy going on right there, and it's more economical for the readers because I can sell for less since I don't have the middlemen, the publishers and the distributors uh, and everybody else between me and them. Um, I have a question from the audience about ebooks. Um, there, she says, ask you about the accounting and reporting accuracy for ebook sales. Well, this is a, this is a big problem. Um, ebook sales, because there are no, there is no printing, there are no physical invoices, because there are a lot of, there aren't a lot of the things that we've been used to in the past uh, for tracking uh, publication and sales, um, ebook royalties are extremely difficult uh, to audit. Uh, and yes, there are plenty of forensic auditing firms out there that do computer audits all the time. Uh, and so we know that there are people out there that have got expertise. Um, however, the fact that all of these things are digital, the fact that you know there's, there's no warehouse for any of this stuff, that you can't prove how many have been distributed. If somebody wants to run two sets of books or run two sets of servers and have switches that switch back and forth between one or the other, trying to track down where they are siphoning off a, a transaction here and a transaction there is going to be really, really, really difficult. So, I mean, when you think about the amount of money that moves through Amazon just at Christmas time, uh, the idea that, you know, if they have billions of dollars moving through there at Christmas time or hundreds of millions of dollars moving through there at Christmas time, um, you know, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars, a million dollars going missing, nobody's gonna notice. And somebody can get rich and someone else is gonna get gonna get nailed. And unfortunately, and this is not to say that Amazon is doing this or that any on online retailer is doing this. But the publishers, the traditional publishers right now, face the same risk that individual authors do. That, that you know, they've got to figure out how to check this stuff, too. Yeah, it's um, not on their servers. And if it no. is on their servers, why should you trust their servers as an author? Yeah, exactly. This, this is one of the reasons why I have maintained since the beginning that every author should be selling his own work off of his own website, off of his own servers, just so he can see what the failure rates are, just so he can assess demand. I mean, I sell a heck of a lot more stuff over the Kindle, uh, and more, more stuff over the Kindle than I do uh, via the Nook, via Barnes & Noble. And I sell, you know, well, I actually sell more off of my website than I do off of Barnes & Noble. But when I look at the percentages of what's purchased, when I look at the ratios and splits between products, and then I look across all of those platforms, the patterns that I'm seeing are telling me that, you know, it, all the patterns seem to ring true. So I'm not seeing basic evidence of someone screwed around with stuff there. So let's face it, you're doing a lot of, you're putting a lot of time into tracking that part of the business that you maybe didn't do when it was more traditional publishing. Would that be accurate? No, I've always tracked as much of this stuff as I can. I'm just kind of a stats freak, so. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I wondered uh, how much, you know, how much of the writer's life is spent writing and how much of it is spent marketing and how much of it is spent tracking the business side of it. How does that break down for you? Um, for me, it probably breaks down, um, you know, 75% of the workday is actually going to be writing. 25% of the workday is going to be tracking data, networking, marketing, uh, those things. Um, you know, every author is going to find a, a different, uh, a different things that make them feel comfortable. Um, and, and, um, and probably the best advice you can give to any writer is find those two or three marketing things with which you are comfortable, with which you, you have some affinity, and do those and do them well as opposed to trying to worry about doing everything and not doing any of it particularly well. 
but of course you are an advocate of vertically integrated publishing, so we'd expect you to um, see you taking your elbow, uh, your shirts, rolling up your shirt sleeves and looking behind the hood more than... Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you've got to. And, and, and figuring out new ways to do this stuff, figuring out, you know, what you can project uh, for your returns. And, and uh, you know, this is stuff that I, I, I just find really, really exciting, working with other authors and all of us trying to figure out how to make this thing work. Um, it, it, for me, it's, it's an incredibly exciting time and, and, a, and a truly wonderful time to be, uh, to be alive and writing and in the writing business. Well, um, you're still using traditional publishers, though. So what are traditional publishers' strong points? Well, it's traditional publishers' strong points right now. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of tough to find uh, their strong points anymore. Um, I, I, you know, I guess that they've got, a, they've got a distribution network. They certainly get into the bookstores. But their strength is going to last only as long as the bookstores do. Um, and with you know, with borders shutting down, with Barnes and Noble closing places, uh, with stores shrinking, um, you know the the benefit of the print side is you know really kind of shrinking. Um, uh, something I've noticed with a lot of the self-published stuff is how poorly edited it is. Well, y- y- you're absolutely right. But here's the funny thing. Um, all the traditional publishers use freelance editors anyway. There is no reason any self-published author cannot hire the same freelance editors that the New York publishers are using to get them to edit their work. Uh-huh. Do you do that? Do you hire in editors? Um, it depends upon what I'm doing. Uh, certainly for uh, In Hero Years, uh, I had the professional editors go over, um, uh, go over the manuscript. Um, for shorter work, because I've worked as an editor... Uh, because shorter work is easier to track, um, I won't have an editor per se. I may have some other people look it over and see what they think. Um, more on the level of, of first readers and stuff. But uh, but it's I think for novels, uh, novels you really need an editor. Uh, for shorter things, I'm not necessarily sure that that at least in my case I need an editor. Yeah, a lot of people are blind to their own prose to a surpri- surprising extent, especially new authors. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, or us two, Kay and I will stare at each other's work for ages and go, "Look, that's wrong, that's wrong," and we go, "No, it's not." Because we're such <laughs> aged professionals at this point. Yeah, we are. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you know, the thing is, is that it, when it doesn't matter, you know, how long you've been in the game, you know, when you get back an edited manuscript, you go, "Excuse me, what? Why did you change that? It makes no sense." I, I was, I, I must admit, I spent a certain amount of time on the Conan. Conan manuscript uh, when it came back from copy editing going what? How, how, why do you think this makes this better? Um, ah! so. well, having edited a few things myself there have been a few works where I couldn't make heads or tails out of it to try to make heads or tails out of it for somebody else so you never right. know yeah, Right. Well, okay. that's, but that's, that's the point where you put the note in and you go author what did you mean here? <laughs> well you do Office Hours and Second Life, so I've had a chance to hear you and ask questions in that format, in that venue. And we've talked in the past about the ability for ebooks to go beyond just being your straight text on the page. What are your thoughts on what they can offer in the future, and can you give us some examples? Well, look, I think a, an absolutely stunning example is, is the book Our Choice uh, by Al Gore, which was just released as an app uh, for the iPad. And this is a book which uh, has got interactive charts and interactive maps. It's got video. It's got sound. It's got beautiful pictures. Um, the, the navigation interface is uh, is is just fantastic um you know it it is it really is though it's 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 represented as a book it really is a fully interactive presentation um which is there and could be everything you want um and i think that that's really uh using the way that uh uh 
this technology allows us to play with things. I mean, there's absolutely no reason why in a in in a in a novel, for example, when you see a place name that you as the reader should not be able to tap that place name in a picture of a map come up uh, in that fantasy world to show you where that is. Um, you know, there, there, or, you know, a character's name comes up, or when a character's first introduced, that character's name is a hot link, and you tap that, and suddenly there's an illustration of that character. Um, no reason at all why you can't do any of that stuff. Um, one of the things that I would love to see done, uh, every ebook reader uh, I know, if you, if you tap on a word, they've got a dictionary. I would love to be able to see uh, some way for us as authors to add a glossary into our uh, ebooks that when you trigger the dictionary function, not only does it go to the dictionary that uh, is the default dictionary on the reader, but also goes to the supplementary dictionary, which is appropriate for that work uh, to be able. So all those all those annoying fantasy words uh, now can be there with pronunciations and and that kind of stuff that uh, that we all would like to have in fantasy novels and. And uh, never find. <laughs> yes. Uh, so what do you think of the current um, e-readers then? Did you expect the iPad to have more of an impact? I didn't um, think it much at all. I, you know, I didn't. I think a lot of people put a lot of a lot of stress on the fact that the that the iPad would allow you to read e-books, and I think that they were. Um, uh, I remember seeing with great glee, you know, oh, the iPad isn't selling much in the way of numbers of books and, and all of those things. Um, the, the iPad is, quite frankly, the iPad is a laptop computer without a keyboard uh, and without about 5% of the functions of your standard laptop computer. Um, does it work well as an e-reader? Absolutely. And I think that there are plenty of people that are willing to buy books and, and, and read them on it. Um, just the same way as I think that there are plenty of folks who are buying books and reading them on their uh, on their smartphones. I mean, I, I literally I've had email and comments from people saying, "Oh, you know, I read that short story on my iPhone. I'm going to get a dedicated reader one of these days." Um, so it's it's gone from four years ago, where you would have to explain to somebody what a Kindle was, to now people asking you, "What reader do you use?" and that is a that is a huge sea change. I get that question like once every other week, really. Which is it is a change that I just didn't even notice. But yep. speaking about, you know, by using an e-reader, you aren't limited to a linear format anymore in te- storytelling. So I've got a question from an audience member who has a question about the future of the novels. She says, "Let's say Jonathan Franzen says the novel is alive and well." Another author says that the linear novel is a thing of the past. What will replace it in writing that draws as many sources, such as memoir? Um, let's see. She wants to hear your thoughts on this. Is that clear, or should I reread it? Sure, sure. I, I don't. I, I think the the important thing here is that um, it's all about storytelling, and in whatever way you can make storytelling work for both the storyteller and the reader uh, is the way that it's going to work. I'll give you a a quick example. Uh, Sir Richard Burton, when he did his translation of the Arabian Nights, if you read them in his translation, it's a multi-volume work, um, he often had footnotes that were longer and more interesting than the stories that the footnotes are about. Um, And so... There, again, in digital form, it's really easy to have just the text of the story, but to have those footnotes, and you can go in there, and and with electronic books, those footnotes could have footnotes, and you could, by hitting hot links, get totally lost inside all the little stories and backstories about all sorts of characters. I mean, if you were to, you know, be reading a book about the Revolutionary War and you hit on the name George Washington and this brought up a biography of George Washington and it talked about when he fought in the French and Indian War with Major Braddock and you click on Major Braddock and suddenly you've got Braddock's biography there and you go on, you could get lost forever. If each one of those little pieces is an interesting story, 
then that will be vastly entertaining. If they're dry as dust, that product will fail. And I think that there's just a lot of writers who are going to figure out cool things to do. Yeah, even think of something like The Sound and the Fury or The Golden Notebook, where you've got these sub-narratives going on. Yep. Reshaping them into different stories based on whether you choose A or B narrative route. Oh, it, it, sure. You know, doing, I mean, this is perfect again for a choose your own adventure uh, kind of thing, exploration of stuff. Um, so I think that that is, is very, very doable. It would be very doable to do a set of four short stories that are interactive and you just sort of wander through them, you know, swapping chapters here and there. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just incredible. And, and the nonlinear format that's presented by the, uh, the devices and, and how those files are, are treated works out very nicely. Right. And it just, I think it will end up changing how the writer perhaps writes or thinks about the way they're presenting their stories, depending on the writer, of course. I think the, the writers who are comfortable with that, uh, with the format change and are willing to understand it and play with it, I think will be able to do some really cool stuff. I suspect, of course, it's going to be the kids that grow up nowadays reading these things that are going to be the ones that carry it to that next level, just because they are inherently going to be more comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Right. I, my mind is just spinning about different books I've read that could be really enhanced by taking it to a, a more immersive format. But um, let's talk about the other part of, we talked about publishing, we've talked about writing, let's talk about marketing yourself. You seem to have figured it out, <laughs> the way you blog, tweet, podcast, you're right there with your fans in a way that you don't often see with authors. What do you think the key is? Well, again, I think the key is finding those things with which you as an individual are, are comfortable. I mean, I find, you know, being in Second Life uh, is very comfortable. I find uh, doing podcasting is, is very comfortable. And so I'm cool with that. I, I do blog and I do tweet. Um, that I have to force myself to do a little bit more because I'm not as uh, comfortable with the, with the demands of it. Um, but uh, but I know that it's I know that it's necessary, and you know because I track the stats, because I look at sales, because I figure a lot of these things out, I can see a material reward for me doing a blog post. You know, if I do a blog post per week that talks about how to be a writer and how to write things, um, I can turn around and see a hundred dollars worth of sales uh, in my online store. That's pretty good incentive for me then to knock out at least one blog post a week on how to write. Um, so it's it's you know it's the it's the reward for effort uh, paradigm that kind of drives me. And it goes back to being aware of of your business essentially. Absolutely. I think any writer who thinks that they just want to write and does not realize that they have uh, committed themselves to being in a business um, either has to stop complaining about the fact that they're not making any money or has to own up to the fact that they're not very good at business. And if they want to make money, they better take care of that. Mm-hmm. So what is your most recent publication, Mike, and what are you working on next? Well, the two most recent books that I had come out, one is a digital-only novel, uh, which is called uh, In Here Are Years I'm Dead. Uh, and uh, that's a, it's a superhero noir novel, so it's a totally bizarre uh, agglomeration of things and a lot of fun. Uh, and so that came out in November. And then also in November was um, At the Queen's Command, which was a, uh, a, a trade paperback uh, first novel in a fantasy series, and it came out from Nightshade uh, Books. Um, and the easy, the easy elevator pitch for that uh, book is uh, Lord of the Mohicans. You know, take, take Last of the Mohicans <laughs> and, and Lord of the Rings and kind of jam them together. Um, the cover is great for that book. Oh, the cover is stunning for that book. Uh, I, I absolutely love it. And, From the um, textures to, yeah, it's just gorgeous. Yeah, they, they really did just a fantastic job with that, uh, with that particular cover. So, and I'm, I'm in the midst of writing Of Limited Loyalty, which is the uh, next book. 
And thank you, Kat, for typing those into the chat window so people can actually see what I said, see what I mumbled. Um, right, and we'll link to all of this stuff when we do the show notes that goes along with the podcast. So we'll do as oh, to your, your tweet account and things like that so people can find you. Cool. All right. Well, we've taken up more than an hour of your time, and you've been just the exact guest I knew you would be, very thoughtful and and you've got a great voice, so we always like that, too. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> so thank you for being our guest on Off the Shelf. Oh, my yeah. pleasure. Yes. Thank you, Mike. That's it for this All week, right. folks. Bye. Off the Shelf is produced for Radio Real by Kegia Garardi and Simeon Beresford. Technical production is by Radio Real. You can find Radio Real on the web at radioreal.org. Music on this program includes works by artists on the Magnatune label. The music in the general introduction is John Playford's All in a Garden Green by Eileen Hadidian and Natalie Cox from their album Dolce Musica, A Contemplative Journey. The off-the-shelf theme music is 1500 Tons by Burning Babylon from the album Stereo Mashup. And we bid you goodbye with this piece, Hagagasan 14 by Eternal Jazz Project, from their album, Gratis Jazz. You can learn more about Magnatune and their artists on their website at magnatune.com. Off the Shelf is licensed under Creative Commons. <laughs>